imagine it's a beautiful day in August, summer day in New York City and Central Park is just crowded with people having a great time. And all of a sudden, snow starts to fall. Central, I need emergency services, forthwith. Unit, what's the condition? Hazmat in Central Park, at least, <coughs> at least 10 people down. And people are looking and then people start dropping. Unit, we're receiving numerous calls about a freak snowstorm. Can you confirm? Affirmative, Central. But it's not snow. It's... It's cocaine. And up above, they see this helicopter with crop duster arms that go out 20 feet on each side. And someone is strafing this jewel in the center of New York City with cocaine. Authors on the Air with Terry Shepard, award-winning broadcaster, narrator, and author of the Jessica Ramirez thrillers. Brought to you by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and by Ramirez and Clark Publishers. Presenting Terry Shepard's latest Jessica Ramirez adventure, Chasing the Captain. Available in print, digital, and audiobook everywhere. Thanks, Lisa. Marshall Karp is an international number one best-selling author, TV and screenwriter, and playwright. Author of the critically acclaimed Lomax and Biggs novel. Then, with James Patterson, he co-created and co-wrote the NYPD Red Series, focused on an elite squad sworn to protect and serve New York's rich and famous. This summer, he's created a sensation with his solo thriller, Snowstorm in August. I would say that as a writer, I keep this file in my head of three different um, types of ideas. Ideas that are ho-hum, but maybe I can make them better. And um, ideas that are really good, maybe I can make them great. And ideas that are just off the wall amazing but I don't know how to make it work in a book. So that was, that helicopter was like, it was spinning around in my head for a long time. And then, I, and then it crashed into another idea I had. For every writer that sits down in front of a keyboard, there are two dimensions to the craft, the story and the characters. The thing I love about doing this, I have the opportunity for character development. And I do develop characters. The nice thing about watching some of these shows on Netflix, where you can binge 10 episodes um, and it's one story, is you get to see the arc of the character. You, you get to see the character development. On a television show with 44 minutes, and I worked in television, it's like, you know, bam. Cut to the crime, cut to, you know, I mean, I, I think in Law and Order, it's like the crime, they show up, they hear them, they get, they find it, it and uh, by the third commercial, they're in the court. I mean, in real life, you want, you know, and I, I, I learned something from this, this guy, I, I just wrote about it, this, this guy, uh, um, Dick Dorso, he was a television legend, um, I think when I met him, he was 80 and he was 
go and strong and playing tennis. And we were developing a, a half hour sitcom for, um, for CBS. Now this guy had developed Gilligan's Island. So he was really smart. And he taught me so much. And one of the things he said to me is, do you know why people watch the same show week in, week out, while other shows crash and burn? I said, no. He said, characters. Because people enjoy the predictable emotional experience that they get from spending 30 minutes or 60 minutes with that character. Think about who you want to have lunch with and you look forward to and think about, oh God, I got to go there again. Honey, do we have to go there again? Didn't we see them uh, last leap year? You know, <laughs> it's like, and so that's my goal to create characters that you fall in love with and root for or that you hate or you don't hate hate but it's like you respect and you know one cop gave me a great quote that i've used on my website he says marshall carp writes really smart criminals and he writes smarter cops in snowstorm in august you come out of the gate with two powerful scenes the snowstorm scene you've described and a courtroom scene so this courtroom scene is really dramatic and i didn't know what to do with that one either and then i thought why is someone strafing new york new york central park with cocaine they're obviously pissed at at new york and then i realized whatever happened in that courtroom scene is what motivated. Now, we know pretty early on that your average helicopter pilot doesn't have 4,000 pounds of uncut cocaine to spread. It's um, Joaquin Alboroto, the most powerful drug lord in the world. So what happened in that courtroom that would really piss Alboroto off that he wants to decimate New York. And then I figured that out. And once I had those two things, okay, so now New York has an enemy that you don't want to have. It's not fiction. It's fictionalizing real crime. And so once I had that, I knew I had a story and now I needed characters. And the characters, having written the Lomax and Biggs series, and then having written all six books in the NYPD Red series with James Patterson, and NYPD Red is much better known than the Lomax and Biggs series, I said it can't be another police procedural. And so most of the people in anti-terrorism are in an office, sitting on a computer, doing, you know, it's like kind of CIA. It's not wet work, CIA kind of work. And they're, they're really good. They're, they're looking at the chatter. They're looking to see who might be doing. Who. So now where there's an all out physical terrorist war against New York, 
um, they need a force that can do it, okay? So who's going to do that? Well, um, my hero, Danny Corcoran, was captain, was the leader of a, a secret anti-terrorist force of 16 men and women that were created by the police commissioner. All they did was train. But just before the coke hits the fern, um, that unit is on a mission at the Statue of Liberty, another cinema where um, there's an anti-terrorist attack, but it's, 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 it's a run-through. It's, it's, um, it's an exercise. But something disastrous happens at the, at the Statue of Liberty, like in Chapter 4. So now, all of a sudden, the police commissioner that we love and Captain Danny Corcoran, they're all kind of getting phased out so that by the time the cocaine comes down on New York City, there's nobody qualified to do it, and the only people that have been qualified have been disbanded by the new by the new police commissioner, who of course is not quite as competent as the rest, and now they have to get together in a clandestine way. Well, that's expensive. It costs a lot of money. So I invented four billionaires who were two on the left, two on the right, but all very passionate about New York. People who, whose very existence, their empires depend on the economy, they want to protect New York City. Yes, they're, they're, they're passionate New Yorkers. But if somebody attacks New York City, they will lose billions of dollars. So they fund these guys. Um, this little group of four billionaires are called the Baltic Avenue Group. And they call themselves Baltic Avenue because... That is the absolute cheapest property you can buy a monopoly. And we, don't, we never meet these people in book one in Snowstorm in August, but they obviously have um, a sense of humor and a sense of the, um, the absurd of what they're, they're, they're forced to do. So now we have a task force led by a hero that you're going to love. You're going to love Danny Corcoran. Is Danny Corcoran based on a real cop? There's a fictional Danny Corcoran, and there is a real Danny Corcoran. Um, the, the real Danny and I became friends, I don't know, about six or seven books ago when I met him, and um, he offered to help me if I needed help. And I, remember, I called him one day and said, okay, three guys break into a hotel, and you know, what, what, what would the cops do? And he told me. He said, oh, call me back anytime. So then I, I, I kept calling him back and calling him back. And, you know, a lot of times he'd say, oh, um, I, I, can't, I can't talk. I'm, I'm, in an, I'm, I'm at an autopsy. Or I can't talk um, hostage negotiation. I mean, I, so I started texting him, can you talk? He had been an undercover cop. He had been over the span of his career. I don't know how many people he talked 
off ledges and off bridges and whatever from, from killing themselves. And he batted 1,000. The Danny Corcoran in the book is, you know, a Marine. He's a, he's a you know, combat veteran. He's, a, he, he's done a lot. But he's uh, taller, thinner, and has more hair than the real Danny Corcoran. The drug lord has said on, on Twitter in Spanish, I'm not going to, you know, but he's basically said, you know, this is vengeance and this is just the beginning of what I'm going to do to you. So now Danny is going after this guy. He's got to find out what he's going to do next. The book is Snowstorm in August. Our guest is author, screenwriter, and playwright Marshall Karp. You have another activity that's close to your heart. Tell us about that. I've also done, you know, I've done a lot of work um, for charity. I have a charity that I um, do. I started with in, um, right after 9-11, Vitamin Angels. Back in 1994 in the Northridge earthquake in California, um, my friend Howard, he's now my, my best friend. Well, he's my only global humanitarian best friend. You know, he's like amazing. Um, during the earthquake, Howard was called and he, um, he brought two pallets of vitamins to Northridge because people needed nutrition, not food. There was no food, you know, there was no services. And then he decided to continue and he started collecting vitamins from vitamin manufacturers who couldn't sell the vitamins anymore to Walmart because they're a year away from expiration and Walmart wants one with two and a half years away from expiration. So they were perfectly good. He would collect them, ship them over to 40 different countries around the world. And when I discovered him, because after 9-11, um, I wanted to do something. My daughter was at ground zero and she's fine. She's, you know, but I went through the horror of what if and once I knew there was no what if, I said, okay, I'm going to do something, payback. And so I found Vitamin Angels, and it was interesting because it was the one charity that I found that I could work f with where we had the answer. We weren't doing, I didn't have to raise $50 million for research. All I had to do is get vitamins, get it to the people who need vitamins. And then um, I asked Howard, what the biggest problem was around the world. And he said, well, there are 100, 100, million, 100 million kids in the third world countries that are, they don't get enough vitamin A. You get it in your Cheerios. You get it from everything. But they don't get vitamin A. And they, in the first five years of their lives, they are at risk for vitamin A deficiency, blindness. How much would those two pills cost, I'm thinking? $7,000. But he said, no, it'd be about um, five cents. And we'd add some parasitics. And then he said, it would cost us about 25 cents to save one child's life. I go, that's four kids for a buck. <laughs> he go, I said, really, you're kidding me. He said, yeah, but nobody makes these, you know, I'm collecting vitamins. I said, Howard, I don't know anybody who has vitamins. I know people have money. 
let's collect money and buy the vitamins. And he goes, I think you might have just changed our business plan. And we went to Johnson & Johnson, and it took the better part of a year, but we, they loved the idea. And the first year, they gave us $50,000. And now, as of last year, with donations from Walgreens and, and Coca-Cola and really big corporate entities, uh, we have um, brought life-saving vitamins to over 70 million kids and nursing mothers around the world. How do you write funny? Well, I've worked in comedy. I, I mean, some of my heroes in writing, not in their life behavior, or like Woody Allen, who knew he, he's a master of seeing it just twisted. And Neil Simon, I wrote a play that has been playing all over the, it's, it's all over. You could play the leading role. Um, it, it's, you know, it's called Squabbles. And it's, you know, Samuel French sends it out and it plays, it's played in thousands of theaters. Uh, I only wrote one play because I went up to do something else. And then I, you know, and like I said, uh, the movie I did, um, a, a coming of age comedy, which is semi-autobiographical because it's about a um, 13-year-old boy back in the day um, before there was internet, before there was anything, who's very curious about sex. And it's really funny. And it's, but it's, very, it's a very sophomoric premise it's, at first. But, and it was directed by Jason Alexander. And it stars, I mean, Patti Lapone and Gretchen Moll and some really cool people. And how do I do it? I, I don't know. Um, you look for the humor in the situation. You don't. You you try not to hurt anybody. Um, also, I hang around with a lot of people. I you, you hang around with cops. I was in the L.A. County morgue for three hours doing research, and I mean I've written about that, and that's pretty. But afterwards, I mean, they closed it recently, but I went to the gift shop. They, they were raising money for their drunk driver program, and so you could buy a lot of cool stuff with um, uh, L.A. coroner logos, you know, or, you know, barbecue aprons that said spare ribs, spare hands, spare feet, you know, and, you know, the sign on the door said, you know, um, uh, you need... Uh, two forms of identification or dental records. I mean, stuff, you know, people would blow their brains out if they didn't have a release. And cops, you know, cops just, Danny, Danny Corcoran, you know, was telling me about the, the philosophy of when a man's down, kick him. And their 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 sergeant comes in one day, and it's you know it's early morning roll call and everything. This sergeant stands up there, and this you know a couple of dozen cops stand there. And the sergeant goes, oh, "God, I don't know, I I can't handle it. Sorry, guys, just my my wife left me for another man." And one cop in the back yells, "Well, just look at you." <laughs> I mean, you know, it got the laugh. Look, I understand that not everybody 
finds everything I say funny, but I just watched this Ricky Gervais thing. I just watched this thing on Netflix, The Hall, where they created the Comic Hall of Fame and indoctrinated George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Joan Rivers, and, and Robin Williams. And John Mulaney's talking about Robin Williams. He said, people think that um, comedians are suffering from a psychiatric disorder. No, they're just funnier than you are. There are lots of people out there with real psychiatric disorders, and they don't have the decency to be funny. Marshall Carp is our guest. Snowstorm in August is the latest. Let's go back in time. Rabbit Factory, one of my favorites. How long did it take you to convince somebody to publish that book? I sold the Rabbit Factory like about 15, 16 years ago. I was rejected by something like 37 publishers. First book. Um, one of the publishers that rejected it in April called back, called my agent in September and said, can you send, do you still have the Rabbit Factory by Marshall Carpenter? Yeah. He said, well, we rejected it because we don't do murder mysteries. But now the publisher said, Give me a murder mystery with great characters, with a great story, with um, a real sense of humor so I could laugh along the way. And the editor goes, oh, we have that one, but I filed it and I trashed it. So we sent them a PDF of The Rabbit Factory on a Friday night, and on Monday morning I got a, a two-book offer and, you know, for, for peanuts, but I didn't care. I was going to be published. Oh, but I have to write another book? Okay, fine, let's do it. But I said to the publisher, you know, a lot of people turn this down. Why? I'm not trying to talk you out of this, but why'd you buy it? He said, I read the first three chapters, and it wasn't so much about, I want to know how the crime got solved. I wanted to stay with these characters, which goes back to, the predictable emotional experience. Suddenly, you you ever meet someone just instantly like them? You don't even know why. Well, and this was back then, and I said to him, you know what would be a cool idea? This is before you could do this stuff on the internet. Print up the first three chapters, and we'll give them out. And we did. And people bought the book. I mean, it was... So send them to the website. Tell them to read the chapters. And um, give them my home phone number. It's, are you ready? 845, no. And if they want to write to me, Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, at Carp Kills. Um, I'm looking for trouble, right? No, I... I, I like readers. I get feedback from readers. I I wrote that one play. I sat in the audience um, for 14 straight nights and listened to the audience. Oh, I don't think he should say that. That sounds so bigoted. I took the line out. Oh, you know, I mean, it's like being in a focus group in the advertising business. You learn a lot in the feedback from uh, from from people, so...
There you go. People enjoy the predictable emotional experience they get from spending time with a character. <laughs> Marshall Carp is a character. He can be found online at carpkills.com. His must-read summer hit is Snowstorm in August. Do a Google search for other conversations with Marshall. If you're a writer, you'll learn something that will make you a better storyteller. If you're a reader, you will become a fan. Authors on the Air with Terry Shepard is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Check out Chasing the Captain, the newest Jessica Ramirez thriller from Terry Shepard, available in print, digital, and audiobook. I'm Lisa Davis. Join Terry in the next chapter for Authors on the Air.